0: Um, It's good to be back with all of you. Um, I just want to start out by saying a brief thank you um, to all of you. I know I was out for a few weeks uh, for surgery recovery, and I just want to say thank you to all of you um, for all the love, all the prayers, the support. Um, I just really appreciate it. You guys are the best. Um, Just really appreciate all the love for both myself and for Alex during the season. Um, I also, I want to share a really brief update as well. Um, some of you, some of you might already know. Uh, Aaron and Emily were hoping to be here with us this morning. Um, Aaron's our lead pastor, and uh, Emily's our director of operations. They were hoping to be here with us this morning. Uh, they're on vacation, and unfortunately, uh, right when they were leaving for vacation, they actually heard from uh, from Aaron's mom that uh, she was going through some medical complications and that she actually uh, was just diagnosed with cancer. And so they're still trying to figure out exactly what type of cancer and what's treatment going to look like and just the whole timeline. There's still a lot of questions, um, but I know that they would especially appreciate your prayers right now, um, and they're hoping to be back with us by next Sunday. So, um, But when you think about it, um, definitely pray for them and maybe reach out um, just to support them. Uh, but with that, uh, this morning we are going to be in the last four chapters of Genesis. Genesis 47 through 50, uh, so this is the last Genesis sermon. I had one person tell me this morning that he is very excited for us to be done with Genesis. So you're welcome. This is the last one. Uh, but we're going to be looking at the last four chapters, and what we're going to see in this passage is that even when we experience terrible evil and suffering in our lives, that we can still trust God and believe that He's good. Uh, you know, when we experience evil, oftentimes we tend to doubt whether God can truly be good. At least I know I do. Uh, this has definitely been true in my life. Uh, a few years ago, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. Uh, in short, there's like issues at, with my small intestine. Uh, it creates like abdominal pain and exhaustion. Uh, a lot of doctors visits. Uh, I have to take an immunosuppressant. Uh, and there's all these, all these things with Crohn's that just stink. And I, through this whole journey, like there's been a ton of times so I'm like, God, why? Like, God, you are good. You're in control of everything. Why, why don't you just take this away? Like, I know you could heal this. Why don't you? Uh, maybe you found yourself in that same situation where you've faced suffering, you've seen something evil happen in your life, and you've just felt your heart cry out, like, God, why why don't you change this? God, I know you're good. I know you're powerful. Why don't you fix this? Maybe for you, um Maybe there's a, a diagnosis that you've received that's terrible. Maybe you've lost a loved one, a child, a parent, a sibling. Maybe uh, you feel like your marriage or a close friendship is falling apart. Maybe you've struggled with depression. Whatever it is in your life, um, maybe you're like me and you've faced that and you've, you've just felt like, God, why? If you're good, why don't, why don't you fix this? Why don't you change this in my life? When we pick up in Genesis 47 through 50, we are confronted with so much suffering and evil. But what we're going to see in these four chapters is that even when we experience terrible evil and suffering, we can still trust that God is good and he deserves our trust. Even if you're not currently facing evil in your life, maybe right now you don't feel like you're suffering, you're not really wrestling with this question, I am sure there's someone in your life who would need to hear about this from you, who would, who's walking through a really hard time, who's suffering, and would need to hear your encouragement. Hey, how can I even still believe in God while I walk through this? Um, so I, I wanna look at these four chapters and uh, I wanna show you why this is true. How can God still be good with all the evil in the world? And there are three truths that I want you to believe. Uh, God redeems you from evil. God brings greater good out of evil and God will end evil forever. So look at those three truths. Let's start with the first one. So God redeems you from evil. God has made a way for us to actually have salvation while we experience evil in our lives. So in Genesis 47, we see that everyone in Egypt is going through this terrible famine. They've completely run out of food. And uh, during this famine, Joseph, uh, he's helping provide for the people. And Joseph, he actually brings his dad, Jacob, to talk with Pharaoh, the ruler over Egypt. And so this is Genesis 47, verses 7 through 9. It says this, verse 7, Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my father's in the days of their sojourning, so what Jacob says is that his entire life has been full of evil. If anyone was well acquainted with evil and suffering, it was Jacob. As a kid, Jacob was shunned by his father. He was hated by his brother. Jacob had to run away from home, and uh, the woman that he fell in love with, he was cheated and forced to marry a different woman. had to labor an extra seven years before he could marry the woman that he loved. And then a few years later, she died during childbirth. Then after that, Jacob's favorite son, Joseph, was sold into slavery by his brothers. And Jacob sank into a deep depression. Like Jacob knew what it looked like to go through incredible evil and suffering. He says that his whole life, few and evil have been the days of the years of his life. But then we get to Genesis 48. And in that chapter, this is where uh, Jacob actually blesses the two sons of Joseph. And in Genesis forty-eight, fifteen through 16, Jacob says something shocking. And at first glance, it looks incredibly contradictory. I'm like, Jacob, how can both these things be true? This is Genesis forty-eight, fifteen through 16. It says, and Jacob blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys and in them, let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Do You see the contradiction? Chapter 47, Jacob says, my whole life, all my days have been evil. Then chapter 48, Jacob says, God has redeemed me from all evil. He's been my shepherd all my life long. Like Jacob, how can you say that? How can both of those things be true, Jacob? You've been walking through evil every single day and God's redeemed you from all of it. Yeah. Well, to actually explain that, to understand it, uh, first we have to look at verse 16. Jacob mentions, he uses this confusing phrase. He talks about the angel who has redeemed him from all evil. Like, Jacob, what do you mean the angel who redeemed you? Well, all throughout Jacob's life, uh, through Jacob's life, he's been receiving these visions from this angelic messenger. He's been, it's been God's way of communicating with Jacob. And at some point, Jacob has realized uh, that God is his messenger. God wants to speak to Jacob through an angel. And so for Jacob, God and this angel are so closely related. To the point that when Jacob says that an angel has redeemed him, what he's getting at, he's saying, God, Like God who's been talking to me, God who's been appearing to me, that God is the one who has redeemed me from every single evil in my life. Jacob knows that it's God's redemption that helps him to overcome evil. You know, that word redemption is not one that we really use at all today, but it's such a beautiful word. Uh, Redemption, it's this idea of buying something back to claim it as your own. Um often with redemption there's maybe someone who is in slavery and God or and that person's freed they're redeemed they're bought back so they can have freedom that's redemption and what Jacob's saying is God has done that for me Jacob's saying my whole life I cheated I stole from people I was a thief but God has redeemed me from all of that God has bought me back God has made me his own God has said you are mine God has given me his forgiveness Jacob has this beautiful understanding of God's redemption and that's what helps him survive the evil in his life. He's clinging to that. What about you? When you walk through terrible evil and suffering, do you cling to God's redemption? Do you hold on tight to that? When you face evil, do you remind yourself that God is your redeemer? Listen, when you go through terrible things, I want you to be able to rest In the redemption of God. I want you to be able to find comfort and joy in that. I think there's two ways that practically, there's two ways that we rest in God's redemption. Here's the first one. We have to realize the enormous debt that we owe to God that we could never repay. See, the first part of, of resting in redemption is being humbled before God and understanding that we've done so many things wrong We could never repay him. We could never buy, we could never buy back our debt. We could never set ourselves free. And so we have to actually be humbled before him, realize that we could never repay him. But then second, to truly rest in redemption, we have to be so thankful. We have to be amazed by the grace of God that he showed us through Jesus. I love the way that Galatians explains this. Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. See, when we, the second part of resting and redemption, it's looking at God and saying, God, thank you. You've, you've bought me back. You've redeemed me. What Jesus did at the cross is he paid the debt that we could never pay. Jesus took our evil and suffering onto himself so we could be set free, so we could be forgiven, so we could have new life. We have to believe that to rest in that. I want you to be like Jacob. I want all of us to be like Jacob, where when we face terrible evil and suffering, we are able to hold on tight to God's redemption and say, I have hope because of that, because God has redeemed me from all evil. When we face evil in our lives and we question God's goodness, we need to remember that he cared so much about our evil and suffering that he actually came to take it onto himself. That's the heart of the gospel. God is not a distant deity who's just ambivalent about the things going on in your life. God cares so much about you God cares so much about the evil and suffering that you're facing that he said, I will come and take it on to myself. That's what Jesus has done for us. See, to address the problem of evil, God didn't just give us logical arguments. He didn't just give us a nice guide. What God gave us was a person. God gave us a redeemer. On the cross, Jesus said, I will take your evil and suffering. I will take it on myself so you can be forgiven and redeemed when you face evil and suffering, remember that God is good because He has given you redemption. Believe that, trust in that, embrace redemption. Um, that's the first truth that we need to believe to, to really trust that God is good when we face evil and suffering in our lives. But there's also a second truth that I want us to believe that we see in Genesis. The second truth is that God actually brings greater good out of every evil in our lives. Some people have called this the classic, uh, answer to the problem of evil. It's that in every evil that God allows, He allows it because there's a greater good that He wants to bring. There is something better that God is accomplishing through the evil that we face. Let me show it to you in the passage. We're going to look at Genesis 50. And when we fast forward to Genesis 50, it's, um, we see that Jacob has actually passed away. He's died. And we see that Jacob's brothers, or uh, Joseph's brothers, get really afraid. So Joseph's brothers, remember, they're the ones who sold Jacob and Joseph into slavery. And so Joseph's brothers, they're worried, now that dad's dead, Joseph's going to try to get his vengeance. Joseph's going to come after us. And so they get so worried about this that they come up with this plan, that they're going to go send a messenger. They're too scared to talk with Joseph themself, themselves. So they decide, we're just going to send a messenger to do it for us. And what we're gonna do is this messenger is gonna tell Joseph, hey, listen, the thing that dad really wanted before he died was for you to forgive us. I mean, this is, this is a terrible scene. And so this messenger goes to talk with Joseph and here's what happens. This is uh, Genesis 50, verse 15. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they send a message to Joseph saying your father gave this command before he died say to Joseph please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you and now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the god of your father Joseph wept when they spoke to him so Joseph's brothers are scared that Joseph is going to get his revenge and Joseph he hears this message and he is just so broken he weeps he he's feeling all the pain from his father's death from everything that his brothers have done to him. Then verse 18, Joseph's brothers finally muster up the courage to come and talk with him himself. And so this is what they say, Genesis fifty eighteen. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today, so do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. I think Genesis chapter 50, verse 20 is one of the most beautiful and profound verses in the entire Bible. Let me just read it again. It says, this is Joseph speaking to his brothers who sold him into slavery. He says, as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph has gone through so much evil in his life. He was falsely accused after being sold into slavery. He was falsely accused of sleeping with Potiphar's wife, which he didn't do. He was thrown into prison. He's gone through so much. And why did God allow all that? Why would a good God let Joseph go through all that evil in his life? And what Joseph is saying saying God had a greater good that he wanted to accomplish. God knew that there was a famine coming for Egypt and Canaan. And so God let me go through all that so that from the prison, I could go to Pharaoh's court and be Pharaoh's second in command. So that when the famine came, I could provide, not just for the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, but I could rescue my own family from death. That's what our God does out of evil and suffering, God brings a greater good. Um, you see, God, he permits evil in our lives. He's not the author of evil, but he does permit it, but only so that he can bring about something better. There's a greater good that God always accomplishes through evil. I love the way that the North African church father, Augustine, says it. in his He says, God judged it an act of greater power and goodness to bring good even out of evil than to exclude the existence of evil. God permits, or you could say that God ordains evil only so that he can bring about something better in our lives, so he can give us a greater good. Um, This doesn't make God responsible for evil. I want to make that very clear. Notice in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, notice how, how Joseph said it. He said, my brothers meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. This is so important. God works things together for good, but human beings, all of us, we are responsible for our sin. God can cause someone to sin, and yet God permits it, and he uses it to bring about something better. God is sovereign in such a way that human beings are still responsible for their sin. But God himself is not the author of evil. James 1, 13 through 14 makes this really clear. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So God doesn't cause evil or he's not the author of evil, but God, human beings are responsible for evil. And yet in every evil, God is accomplishing a greater good in our lives. This is a really hard, confusing doctrine to talk about. It's really tough for us to get our minds around this. I love the way though, that uh, Pastor Tony Evans explains this idea. He has this beautiful illustration uh, of an orchestra. He says, imagine that you're going to listen to an orchestra and you show up early and you hear them all warming up. And if you've ever heard an orchestra warm up together, you know it sounds terrible. Everyone's playing, the notes are going wild. It's jarring to your ears. I did band in high school. It's a terrible sound. You're hearing everyone go wild. Like it's going to make your ears bleed. But then the conductor walks out. And what the conductor does is he takes all these sounds and he works them together into something beautiful. He makes a masterpiece. He brings something greater out of all that than could ever happen by itself. See, what God does, he is the masterful conductor in our lives. God permits evil, but only so that he can bring about a greater good, so he can work something beautiful in your life, so he can accomplish his masterpiece. God permits evil, but only to bring about a greater good. At this point, atheists will object to what Christians say. And they'll say this. Christians are believing, and all theists actually, are believing in contradiction. Because if you say that there's an all good, and an all-powerful God, then you cannot account for the existence of evil. Because an all-good, all-powerful, all-knowing God would never allow evil in the world. This is what's called the logical problem of evil. One atheist philosopher, J. L. Mackey, says it like this: He says, in its simplest form, the problem is this: God is omnipotent, God is wholly good, and yet evil exists. There seems to be some contradiction between these three propositions, so that if any two of them were true, The third would be false. It does seem like this creates a huge problem for theists. I know personally, I've wrestled with this. How how can we explain the existence of God if evil also exists? I was very surprised to learn though that philosophers have actually largely given up on the logical problem of evil. They've realized it's a dead end. Uh, One philosopher, Alvin Plantinga, he's a Christian philosopher. He's written a lot on this. Uh, We won't go into a ton of detail, but he's written two books if you're interested. Uh, God, Freedom, and Evil is the shorter version for non-philosophers like me. Uh, But he also has a longer book, uh, The Nature of Necessity with Oxford. And he goes in depth. He's one of many philosophers that have actually convinced uh, convinced people that the logical problem of evil doesn't actually work. And I wish that we could go deep into that, but let me just give you the most basic reason that I think it doesn't work the most basic reason why God can be holy, good, all-powerful, and evil still exist. And it's this. For us to actually be able to distinguish good and evil, there must be some sort of objective standard by which we tell right from wrong. We, there has to be something outside of us, something transcendent, something bigger than us that we can look to, some sort of moral standard by which we can say, yes, that is truly good and that is truly evil. Without that, it's all subjective. I say something's evil, another society says it's okay. Who's to say? Who's right and wrong? There must be something outside of us, some sort of universal moral standard that comes from a moral lawgiver. There must be someone who gives morality, who defines it for all of us, and that must be God. You see, the fact that we're actually able to tell that evil exists, and objectively say, some things are just wrong. Murder is just wrong, whether one society says it's wrong or not. The reason we're able to say that is because God himself is the standard. God is good itself, setting the standard for right and wrong. I love the way that uh, the British intellectual, C.S. Lewis, talks about this. In his conversion to Christianity, this was a huge issue. And so he talks about this in his Mere Christianity. He says, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust, But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. What a What he's he's saying is, we can tell crooked because we know straight. We We can clearly identify unjust because there's a standard for justice. Because God himself is goodness. God shows us what's good. And that's the reason we can say things are objectively evil. The fact that we're able to identify injustice and evil points us to a God who is perfectly good, who is the standard of goodness. Evil doesn't disprove God's existence. In fact, we, we see that every evil that God permits, he's actually using it to accomplish something even better in our lives. If you're a Christian and you're walking through evil and suffering right now in your life, I want you to find hope. I want you to really believe, to feel in your heart that God will bring a greater good in your life. I want when you face terrible evil and suffering, I want you to still be able to have hope knowing that God is good. He loves you. He's at work in your life. And he is going to accomplish something better. Whatever it is that you're facing, God has not left you. He has not abandoned you. He's still going to work this for good. I promise you, at some point, God is, God is going to use this for something better in your life. Alex and I just went on our anniversary trip to celebrate three years of marriage. And every single anniversary, we'll write each other letters that we'll exchange on our anniversary. And uh, this year, uh, we were reading our letters to each other and both of us put in our letters how this last year has been full of so many medical issues, so many doctor's visits, so many complications, so much hurt, a lot of pain. And yet through all of that, we've watched God do beautiful things in our lives. We've both watched as use that to strengthen our marriage, to teach us to rely on one, another, to help us to rely more on and really depend on Him. God's used it to teach us to communicate even better. God has used these evils that He's permitted to accomplish a greater good in our lives. And I want you to believe He is doing the same thing for you. Every evil God permits, there is something better that He's accomplishing. As a church, we've been in Genesis for almost a year now. And we're almost done. But it's beautiful to look back at Genesis and see that so many times along the way, God has taken evil and brought a greater good. Think about Adam in the garden. Adam and Eve in the garden. The serpent came and tempted them. And they sinned. And yet out of that evil, God promised, there is a serpent crusher coming who will crush the serpent's head. There's a greater good I'm bringing out of this. We see that with Noah, Noah lived in a society that was incredibly corrupt, that was falling apart. So bad that God sent this massive flood. And yet through that, God preserved Noah's family to to rescue the human race. And God actually made a covenant with Noah that he was going to protect creation. We see with Abraham. Abraham was a pagan. He didn't know God. And God came to Abraham and called him and said, Abraham, you will be mine. God made a covenant with Abraham and promised, Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless every single nation. We see, uh, we keep going after Abraham. We see Isaac. Isaac left his wife vulnerable, Rebecca, when they were in a foreign land. He was not being a good husband. And yet God promised through Isaac to continue the promise uh, to Abraham to bring a people that would be multiplied and blessed. Jacob, a cheater and a thief. And yet through Jacob, God came to Jacob and said, your name is no longer Jacob, it's Israel. Through you, I am bringing about my people, Israel. We get to Joseph. Joseph went through slavery, prison, oppression. And in that, God promised, I will rescue an entire land. I'll rescue Egypt and Canaan and your family from this famine. God has given us the ultimate example. When we look all the way down through history, We see the ultimate example of God bringing good out of evil is Jesus himself. The death of Jesus on the cross is by far the greatest evil ever committed. Jesus was brutally murdered on a cross. He was innocent. And then on the cross, Jesus took all of our evil, everything that we've done wrong. And yet through that evil, God brought about the greatest good. God brought about our salvation. Jesus took our evil so that we could have his goodness, so we could be forgiven, so we could be redeemed, so we could be made new. Out of every evil that God permits, he has something better that he's accomplishing. And the cross is the ultimate example of that. We can trust God, even while we experience evil. We can trust that he is good. We can can rely on him. We can come to him. We can seek him in prayer. We know that God redeems us from evil. We know that in every single evil... God is accomplishing a greater good. And there's also a third truth that we see in Genesis. And it's this, that God will end evil forever, forever. God has promised that evil has an expiration date. It won't go on forever. But one day God will extinguish evil for all time. I want to actually back up to Genesis chapter 49. I know we were just in chapter 50. But actually, I want to go back because in chapter 49, we get this prophecy about the end of time. And so when we pick up in Genesis 49, we see that Jacob, he's sitting down with his sons. Jacob's about to die. And what Jacob does is he promises, he he, he tells his all 12 of his sons, uh, here's what your future will hold. In Genesis 49 verse one, it says, then Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. This phrase in days to come is so important. Let me nerd out just for a second. In Hebrew, the phrase is be'achrit hayamim. And this is a very important phrase all throughout the Old Testament, almost always. This is a technical phrase talking about eschatology, talking about the end times, talking about the final day of judgment. And so what what Jacob is telling us in Genesis 49.1 is this prophecy I'm about to give you, it's not just about the things in the Old Testament, although it is about that. But what Jacob's saying is that I am telling you what will happen at the end of time itself. Here's what's coming. And I wish we had time to look at the prophecies for all 12 of the sons. Uh, a lot of them are sad or maybe weird, but we only have time to look at the prophecy about Judah. And so let's look at, uh, this is verse eight of Genesis 49. This is what Jacob prophesies about his son, Judah. He says this in verse eight, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the necks of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? So Jacob says that Judah is going to be like a lion who conquers all his enemies. No one's going to be able to stand against Judah. Even all of his brothers, his whole family will bow down to Judah. This isn't the last time that the Bible talks about how Judah is like a lion. We keep going. We go all the way down to the end of time itself. Revelation chapter five tells us what's going to happen in the end. And Revelation five, verse five, it tells us this. It says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so he can open the scroll and seven seals. What Revelation says is that there's the lion of Judah who's going to come and will conquer all his enemies. Even evil itself will be put to an end. And who is the lion of Judah? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one from the line of Judah, the descendant of Judah, who's coming as a roaring lion to conquer every single enemy. He, he is the one who will reign, who will defeat evil. This prophecy with Judah, it keeps going. Uh, I, I love verse 10 of Genesis 49. The prophecy continues in verse 10. It says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So this is another image of this dominant ruler who has this Judah's staff or a scepter in his hand. and He's conquering all his enemies. And think with me for a moment, when was the last time in the book of Genesis that we heard about Judah's staff? If we back all the way up to Genesis 38, we see that Judah's staff was actually what he used when he went, uh, he, he went and visited Tamar, his daughter-in-law, who he was not treating well. And Tamar dressed up as a prostitute. And Judah actually slept with her. And as a promise, as, as like a, a sign and a seal, Judah said, here's my, here's my scepter. So back in Genesis 38, Judah's scepter, it was a symbol of his promiscuity, of his lust, of his hypocrisy of his terrible treatment of Tamar. But then when we get to Genesis 49, we get a promise that there is a ruler coming who will wield Judah's scepter properly. He will use the scepter, not for lust, not for hypocrisy, not for evil, but he will use it for good. There's a better one coming in the line of Judah who is going to take what Judah did for evil and he's going to use the scepter for good. We keep going uh, down through scripture. And we see in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8, this is what it says. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Who is the Son who uses the scepter? It's Jesus. Jesus is the ruler. He's the one who's going to use Judah's scepter rightly. Jesus is the one who can come into evil itself and bring about good. He's the the reigning ruler who will end evil for all time. Evil will expire. Jesus will extinguish it forever. Evil itself will be undone by our conquering king. A few weeks ago, um, I had a major surgery for my Crohn's. Um, I had to get a few inches removed At the end of my small intestine, uh, just some stuff was all bent up, out of shape, creating blockages. And so I had the surgery, and they let me out of the hospital two days later. And Alex and I were sitting down at lunch, and it just hit me that uh, the Crohn's is gone. It's not active in my body anymore. God's used medicine. He's used surgeons to heal that. And uh, I just, you know, broke into tears. And it just hit me like, this is a little foretaste of what God is going to do forever in heaven. There is one day when we will look at every disease, when we will look at every, every suffering in the world, we will look at all pain and we will say, God has put an end to all of it. That's the promise that we have in heaven Jesus will come and he will put an end to suffering. He will put an end to evil itself. What we see in the gospel is that Jesus took our suffering. He took our pain so we'd be forgiven, so we'd be made new. And then Jesus, he actually, he rose again. The resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Christians don't talk about it enough, but it's, it's so powerful. What Jesus did in his resurrection, he began new creation. Jesus began the process that he will finalize one day when he comes back of new creation, of the world being put right, of evil itself being ended. And in his resurrection, Jesus gave us a promise that the way that he, he rose again with a new body, that one day all of us, if you trust in Jesus, if you believe in him, that all of us will have a new body, will rise again. No more broken bodies, no more crones, no more sickness, no more pain. Everything will be made new. Jesus is going to put an end to, to evil and suffering and give us something better, He'll give us new creation. We also see that Jesus is a conquering king. And so um, part of what Genesis 49 shows us is that Jesus is the king who will conquer every single enemy. Anyone who rebels against Jesus who ultimately does not submit to his lordship and does not trust in him will ultimately be conquered. Anyone who does not place their faith in Jesus will face his judgment one day. If you haven't submitted your life to Jesus and placed your faith in him, placed your faith in his perfect life, his death, his resurrection, and believed that's the only way I can be made right with God, do that. Trust in him. Put your faith in Jesus that you won't face his judgment, but you will be blessed with his new creation. In all the evil and suffering that we face, we can trust God and believe that he's good. God, he shows us his goodness through his redemption that he gives us. He shows us his goodness by always bringing a greater good out of evil. And God promises that he will put an end to evil forever. Trust in him and see that he's good. Let's pray.